invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. One long discourse out of the mouth of Jesus concerning the end of time. Our world is most certainly fascinated with the end of time, both believer and unbeliever alike are taken up with the subject, though both have very different perspectives. Both are in wonder at what the end of time might look like and might hold uh, as that moment draws nearer and nearer. Um, There is a general agreement, though not an agreement of how it will come about. There isn't a a general agreement that it will at least come about. Uh, We hear regularly stories of scientists warning us of the impending doom that our planet and our species as human beings faces, whether it be the energy of the sun is dispensing more rapidly than we realized, or uh, climate change is uh, destabilizing at an at a alarming rate, or whatever it may be, people are fascinated and take up the subject of the end times and, and plan accordingly to it, or attempt to plan accordingly to it. And that's been the case throughout um, all, all of human history, really, and and uh, most, most certainly in recent history. Uh, you, you find it as early as the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. It was the threat of, threat of global war that might undo us and, and send the, the world into the end of time, apocalyptic time. Uh, the 1950s and 60s, it was uh, the threat of nuclear war and Cold War rhetoric that everybody thought would be the end of human civilization and human life as we know it. In the 90s, it was moral failure, failure of our political leaders. And, and that was the undoing of humanity. And, and in my opinion, most comically, the year 2000. We, some of us remember Y2K when all the computers were going to shut down and the world was going to spin out of control and the universe was going to end as, as we know it. And all of those things are just examples of people over time always being conscious of the fact that this life as we know it isn't going to continue on. It's going to end. In fact, most older generations love to lament the fact that things just aren't quite as they used to be. See, we've, we've got some agreeing this morning. The world seemed to be generally safer back in the good old days. Uh, people were, were kinder and more respectable and we left our doors unlocked and we let our kids play freely outside. Even myself, I remember in the small town I grew up in, riding my bike a mile, a mile and a half down downtown to buy uh, a coke. Uh, the thought of letting my daughter do that now terrifies me. So there is some credence there, at least to a sociological aspect of, of human nature progressing to a place of deterioration where we realize life can't continue on this, this path. Something's going to implode upon itself. All of that to say that there is just this general human fascination and understanding that life as we know it, the world that we live live on won't continue forever. The difference is what we believe about that event coming about and what it represents. From a biblical perspective, the end of time isn't concerned with uh, doomsday predictions like zombies or alien invasions. Biblical narrative is concerned with the second coming of Christ. And primarily in the second coming of Christ, taking away that which is old, and creating newness. 
the story of redemption is the fact that yes, time will come to an end and everything as we know it will pass away and that's a good and glorious thing because in the passing away of this old former life will come a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth where Christ will reign supreme and we'll enjoy company with Him forever in perfection in the way that things were intended to be. So we actually as believers can celebrate the closing of this age, the end of time. But unfortunately, not everybody's there, are they? They are more taken up with things like government uprising and zombies and, and plagues and whatnot. And so they build their doomsday shelters totally unaware that these signs and catastrophic events aren't meant to just drive them into fear. They're meant to drive them to Christ. And all of these chaotic things that are enveloping our, our existence as human beings are meant to drive us to see this world is broken and we need a Redeemer. We need a fixer. The signs of the end of times are meant to drive us to Christ and in driving us to Christ meant to remind us that the new creation is coming. That's come, what we come to consider in Luke 21 this morning. Really not just this morning, over the next couple of weeks. If you look in Luke 21 from verse 8 through the end of the chapter, verse 36 at least, it's all one discussion. One speech or discourse from the mouth of Christ. He begins speaking in verse 6. Has a question asked of him in verse 7. And from verse 8 to verse 36, he doesn't stop. And what he's teaching on is the end of time. And what's going to happen. And how people are going to know the end of time is coming about. But what he is primarily concerned about is what the whole biblical narrative is primarily concerned about. The return of Christ upon this earth. If you look in Luke 21 verse 27... You see the bookend, the back end the bookend of this passage is this statement. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. For the Christian, that's what the end of time is about. That's bookended in the beginning by verse 8 when Jesus is talking about false messiahs coming in His name, claiming to be Him. And He says, don't listen to them. You'll know when the Son of Man comes. And that's what all of this is about. The text that we're going to look at today is verse 5 through verse 19. And in these verses, he's preparing us with the signs that will preclude the coming of Christ. Those signs, again, that I mentioned that are meant to drive us to Jesus Christ, that are to prepare us. I find it so amazing that at the, the end of his life here, he's not focusing primarily on the details of the event of the cross. He's covered that already. He's preparing his disciples to realize the cross isn't the final word. Yes, I will die, I will resurrect, and then I will come again. And this is what you need to know to be prepared for that second coming. Luke 21 is Jesus' final public speech. In chapter 22, he retreats to seclusion with his disciples. At the end of chapter 22... He's arrested. Chapter 23, he's on trial. Then at the end of chapter 23, he's crucified. In chapter 24, he's resurrected in the end of the gospel. In chapter 21, this is the last public speech he wants to make to the world listening. And it is this, get ready because this world is passing away and I am coming back and you must be prepared. And in His grace and in His mercy, He prepares us 
by laying out several signs that we will take note of through these verses this morning. So look with me in Luke chapter 21, verse 5, and we'll go ahead and read through verse 19. Verse 5, Luke reports and he writes, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. All of this starts with verse 6, really verse 5 and verse 6, the scene that's taking place in this one singular statement made by Jesus. It's the spark that starts the question in verse 7 and then the discourse through the rest of the chapter. In verse 5, we, we really have to connect back to verses 1 through 4. We pick up right on the heels of the poor widow's offering in verses 1 through 4. And the people around Jesus in the temple in verse 5 are simply marveling at the glory and grandeur of the temple itself. Right on the heels of this widow giving her last cent to a bankrupt religious system comes these people who are standing there marveling their religious system. And they're looking at the decorative, noble, precious stones that align the walls and the floors and the ceiling. And they're also looking at the offerings. That's the word that explicitly connects us back to this widow woman. They're looking at the money that's been taken in. All of that to say, there are people who are not just marveling at the splendor, but they're enjoying and loving their wealth and their materials and all that that represents within the temple itself. Now, to be fair, the temple is a spectacular structure. It's, in most places, plated with pure gold. From some of the historians of the time, we have some very intricate details that we know about the temple. Historians like the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, both of them tell us splendid things about the temple. For instance, it was, in their minds, the biggest, grandest structure in all of the ancient world. It overstood all other temples and buildings of the time. 
they report, both of those historians report, that on the southeast corner of the retaining wall, the, lo- the stones were so large, they measured 42 feet in length, 11 feet in height, and 14 feet in width. And then both of them also report that the stones that were in the sanctuary part of the temple were even larger than that. They both also report of the south portico of the temple and that it was filled with tens of columns in that south portico that were so big it took three grown adult men with their arms spread around to to envelope the circumference of those columns. And then those columns rose up to a beautifully cedar-planked ceiling with gold walls, decorative gold walls resembling grapes and pomegranates and and lattice and all kinds of beautiful structures. So it's in that scene we kind of understand this is a, a marvelous structure unlike anything else that the world at the time knows and even has known since. In fact, Scripture itself even lends itself to, to those understandings. Solomon's temple is a glorious structure. But while they're sitting there marveling at the grandeur of their achievements, and the wealth of their religious system, the principle we saw true in verses 1-4 through four is true here in verse 6. Jesus values things very differently, doesn't He? It's in the midst of their marveling that Jesus responds in verse 6, everything that you see here, it's going to pass away. All the gold, all the precious stones, all the intricate woodwork, all the special meaning... Uh, locations in this temple, it's all going to be undone. It's all going to be taken down and more precisely, it will be destroyed. Our Lord's already talked about this in chapter 19, verses 41 through uh, 44. He's talked about all the stones of Jerusalem being um, taken apart and lifted off of one another and reduced to rubble. And in chapter 21, He says, even specifically, not just Jerusalem itself, but the temple the epicenter of your life and your faith and your economy and your social life, it itself will be torn down. And about 40 years after this statement, it is torn down. AD 70 as the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem and included in that is the temple. It's not going to last, Jesus says. Which has two weighty meanings to me. One, I think it's a a pronouncement of judgment. God is not going to sustain a religious system that is corrupted and doesn't honor His name. He's certainly not going to sustain a religious system that bears His name but is so far from His heart. And so that temple is not going to be upheld. It's going to be torn down. Secondly though, I think this is okay in the eyes of God. Verse 6 that the temple where His glory was supposed to dwell, where He was supposed to meet with His people, it's okay that He's going to let it be destroyed because in a few days' time, Jesus is going to render this temple obsolete and unnecessary. When He is crucified on the cross and resurrects from the dead, and in that moment, He makes us His temple and Him our temple. Where it's no longer God is going to dwell in this structure with you. It's that God is now going to dwell in you. We have this beautiful picture here. This preclude not just to the end of time. But to the 
cross itself in the very statement of Christ in verse 6. This ten- temple is not only going to be pronounced on uh, judgment upon it through God, but it's also going to be rendered obsolete. You won't need it anymore. And it will be taken away. Now the, the judgment that seems to be coming from verse 6 comes in the phrase, this, the days will come when this will happen. That is a standard last times reference in the Bible. And it in, in, uh, implies God's initiative, a divine decision, an act of God that God is carrying out. And that's exactly how the people take it. In verse 7, they ask Jesus two questions. When and what? When will these things be? The things of the temple being torn down. And what will be the sign of them coming? They ask for a sign because they realize Jesus is saying in verse 6 that God will have this temple torn down. And so they ask the standard question. What are going to be the validating signs that God has this temple torn down? All throughout the New Testament, signs are often used as uh, a way of validating God's work and will in creation and human life. And that's what they're asking. What are going to be the signs that lead up to this event of God pronouncing His judgment and rendering this temple obsolete? And so verse 8, Jesus begins to respond appropriately and this is where He launches into His discussion and He says, first and foremost, do not be led astray. Because there's going to be many people who come in my name and they're going to be claiming things about God and the temple and they're going to be claiming to be the Messiah. Don't listen to them. There's two bookend statements in verse 8 alone. Don't be led astray. Don't go after them. Both are emphatic. Don't be tricked. Don't be duped into following these false messiahs. Do not go after them. It's about 20 years removed from that very statement that it so clearly comes true. About 20 years or so after Jesus' death, there are already arising false messiahs. In fact, Rome invades Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem in AD 70 because zealots believed in a false messiah who told them to rise up against Rome, defend the temple, and liberate themselves. And as a result, riots and rebellion broke out and Rome broke in. Even recently, today's times, there's just last year, National Geographic put out in their magazine and then did a video documentary about four individuals who are alive today claiming to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are so many more, but these four have garnered hundreds of followers. Hundreds. Of followers. We're living in a time already where verse 8 has come true and is still true. And Jesus' instruction in verse 8 is, is still the instruction to you and I today. Don't take this as a light matter because it's not a light matter for Christ Himself. Do not go after them. The lesson is, is quite clear. When the end of time comes and the return of the Son of Man comes, it will be plainly evident. Verse 27. He'll come in undeniable power and great glory. And all these signs that He's preparing or or 
or sharing with us to prepare us, all of them will have been fulfilled and clearly evident. Don't listen to these false teachers. Here's what must take place first. And from verse 9 through verse 19, Jesus mentions four areas of what we might describe as universal chaos before the Son of Man comes. The first one is in verse 9 and 10, and it is political chaos. Verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In other words, there's going to be political instability, and associated with that will be social and economic instability. Political chaos will abound. And there will be rumors and rumors of such things. Verse 9, you back up. You'll hear of wars and tumults or, or commotions of these things. And the nature of these things isn't just going to be simple disagreements. It's going to be opposition. These nations will be against other nations. These kingdoms will be against other kingdoms. They're, they're not just simply at odds. They're opposed to one another. And now, they're not, they're not just opposed to one another. They're forsaking their God-given responsibility of rewarding good and punishing evil. Now, instead, they're caught up with their own stature, their own dominance, their own wealth. And so they fight against one another. It reveals a deeper issue of man's depravity, doesn't it? Where men are at each other's throat for power for wealth, for reputation. When Jesus says in verse 9, don't be terrified about these things. Because the end's not going to be at once. None of these signs by themselves prove really anything. But when they all come together, they paint a clear picture that the end of time is drawing near and you must be ready and prepared. The first one that is mentioned in the text, not in chronology, but in the text, is that there will be political instability, political chaos. Governments now have no idea what they exist for. And they oppose one another. And we live in that time where rumors and rumors and rumors abound of countries threatening one another and institutions threatening one another. And the political, governmental institution intended by God to be good and ordained by God, is now vastly confused. Those are just birth pains to what lies ahead. Verse 11, the first part of verse 11 is the next chaos that we'll encounter. Geological chaos or natural chaos. There's going to be great earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines and pestilences. Romans 8 talks about creation itself groaning for redemption because the effects of sin has corrupted even nature. And that might be what's in mind here and as Christ teaches. Earthquakes happening as, as creation itself is, is rumbling with decay and corruption and death as it gets ready to pass away and melt. But even more so, especially famines and pestilences, especially in the Old Testament, those are things that tell of God's impending judgment. They're tools often in Scripture in the hands of God to bring about His purpose. 
In other words, God's going to permit earthquakes. He's going to permit and send famines. He's going to permit and send pestilences to prepare the earth to pass away, to drive people to realize their need for a Redeemer, to show that this world, this creation, has fallen. It is no longer good. It needs redemption. And redemption. It needs replacement. And we will live in a time where geological chaos abounds. And we might already, to some extent. Quick internet search will disclose to you just how recent certain events have happened that are uh, widely abnormal. Earthquakes in various places, tsunamis rising up in, in strange particular ways, pestilences of biblical proportions, one recent article described it as. Getting people ready for the fact that the world is passing away the Son of Man is returning, and you must be prepared. Thirdly, not just going to be political chaos or, or geological chaos, there's going to be cosmic chaos. And, he says, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. In the Bible, heaven doesn't always mean a, a celestial dwelling place of paradise and bliss and joy and perfection. Sometimes it means the sky and the stars and the solar system and the outer space, the universe, and, and that kind of language. And that's exactly what it means here. There's going to be unexplainable, terrifying things that arise. Where things come out of nowhere and things are doing, uh, things are happening and, and getting done that nobody can explain. Even just recently, within the last six months, uh, NASA declared the first interstellar object coming into uh, near uh, Earth's orbit and into our solar system, and they cannot explain its origin, its makeup, and why it takes the trajectory it takes. And as a result, you can imagine they are pronouncing doomsday theories. Such things are meant to serve a purpose. All of that is to say, there's going to be these notable signs these notable things that God does and permits that can't be explained by anything other than His permission or His hand that drive people again to realize this world is very broken and something needs to be done. Most notably, the fourth and final place, verse 12 through 19, it's the place Jesus spends the most time talking and it's the place that strikes the heart most fervently it's it's an area that is much more intense much more costly and much more personal it's relational chaos will abound relational chaos we can look at nation rising against nation and almost push that off to the side. We can do the same with earthquakes or cosmic terrors that arise. But we can't escape verses 12 through 19. It hits home. And it hits home forcefully. In verses 12 through 19 alone, the personal pronoun you or your is mentioned somewhere around 15 times. Jesus would have his hearers understand he is speaking directly to them. 
he says this chaos that will preclude the end of time and the return of, of the Son of Man, it will be manifested on the highest and lowest levels of human society. And he says in verse 12, it will be the first of all signs. Before any of these other things happen, the relational disintegration of humanity will take place. It begins with persecution. Mentioned in verse 12 and verse 16. In verse 12, he's speaking to his disciples who live and act and are marked by the end of verse 12, his name. You're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, is what he says. That's not the first time he's mentioned that to his disciples or in the Gospels. If you look in Matthew chapter 10, he's mentioned it there as well. A very similar passage, but shared in Matthew's Gospel at a very different time. Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples to be witnesses in the surrounding area. And this is what he says in verse 16 of Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants and in, uh, serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Here's what Christ warned his disciples and is repeating again in Luke 21. If you bear the mark of my name, you'll bear the mark of persecution. And it's coming. And it's coming upon all who bear the mark of my name. It's the prelude, the, the, the precursor to the end of time. It must happen. It must take place. Paul would say it similarly, but a little different in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. At the end of his life to his protege, his child in the faith, Timothy, he says, for all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you are living and working and proclaiming my name and doing these things for my name's sake, he says in verse 12, you will be seized and you'll be hauled before all kinds of authorities. They're going to put their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you to the synagogues. They're going to put you in prisons. You're going to be brought before kings and governors. You'll be persecuted by both Jews in their synagogues and Gentiles in their governments. Everyone will hate you. It's striking, isn't it, in verse 10, that all these governments and 
all these kings and all these rulers are going to hate each other, but one thing they'll have in common is their hatred for Christians. The one thing that will bring peace among warring nations is the hatred they have for the people of God who haven't committed any crime, who simply proclaim one name, and that name is Jesus Christ. There's no insurrection. There's no rebellion. There's no political uprising. In fact, throughout church history, most of the churches behaved as Jesus behaved when He stood before Pilate, not opening their mouth. As a land that was led to the slaughter is silent, the church has largely remained silent as she's been persecuted. Brothers and sisters right now all around the world who are under this very description of verse 12, they're not rising up in political rebellion or, or acting as zealots. They're quietly mimicking their and imitating their sacrificial lamb. Their mouths remain quiet. And the only reason they're being persecuted is because they believe and they proclaim one single name and that name is Jesus Christ. And that's been the case throughout all church history as early as the emperor who will behead Paul, Nero. In Rome, the capital city of Rome itself, Christians were so despised and hated that when the city burned down, they naturally and easily blamed Christians and thousands were killed. Thousands. In fact... All of it starts in Acts 8 and never stops and never lets up. A gentleman named James Edwards, I've quoted him several times through Luke's Gospel and his commentary. This is what he writes. He says, What is the history of the fledgling Christian movement if not a litany of trials before kings and governors? Jesus was hauled before Antipas and Pilate. Peter, John, and Stephen before the Sanhedrin. James before Herod Agrippa I. And Paul before Galileo and Felix and Agrippa and Festus. In every instance, the offense was not a malfaction, but it was simply due to bearing witness to the name of Jesus. Whole societies have proven verse 12 true. Hating Christians simply because they bear the name of Christ. That itself is weighty enough to consider. Jesus makes it much more personal as we skip down to verse 16. It's not just authorities and strangers that will persecute us. It's the most safe, secure, and intimate family institution or institution among human beings, and that is the family itself. You'll be, he says, delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, will put to death. And they think, Isaiah 66, 5, that they're doing it for the good of God. Some of your own children and grandchildren Spouses may deliver you up. At this point, you want to ask the question, is Jesus worth all this? Is it? 
Because such statements like verse 12 and verse 16 aren't advantageous for church growth. They're not very attractive. In fact, some even take verse 16 to say not just your biological family will deliver you up, but even your church family might deliver you up. Those who belong to the church might, under the pains of persecution, share your name. And that has certainly been the case in church history. As their torturers rip their flesh from their body, they give up the names of other believers. Even right now in China, might not supposed to share this, but I will anyways. Right now in China, I know of personally missionaries who are being arrested and deported and not given the opportunity to take any of their possessions because the Chinese government is going in, grabbing their computers and getting the names of other believers that they have correspondence with to do the same things to them. And this is the life we yield. This is the life given to us. This is the the sign of the end of times. The promised persecution of those who belong to to Christ. In verse 17, Jesus just summarizes it. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Twice that phrase is mentioned in this passage, for my name's sake. And in both times it's in connection to persecution. You're going to be hauled before authorities and you're going to be hated by everybody. That's the persecution. That's the sign of persecution that will preclude the coming of the Son of Man. But there's this uniqueness to this type of persecution. Churches experience, as I've said, persecution all throughout its history, but this persecution will be a unique kind. The presence of Christ will be plainly evident. Look in verse 13 how Jesus describes this persecution. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I don't know about you guys, but I don't read verse 12 and verse 16 and think of opportunity. But Jesus does. He looks into your persecution and he says, There, right there, is a great opportunity. A great opportunity to bear witness about me, to bear witness about my name, to bear witness about the saving power and efficacy of the gospel. This will be your opportunity. That is a perspective-changing statement, isn't it? It means, it should change our minds to understand that it means it doesn't matter what the end holds for us or what kind of persecution we experience. We will have the privilege in the midst of the pains of persecution to bear witness to the name of Jesus. It's a true opportunity that we find Paul taking advantage of. Not only does he stand before Agrippa and Festus, he stands before the emperor himself and bears witness to Christ. Such a statement leaves me in awe. It changes the way I view suffering. It changes the way I view my life. It changes the way I view my existence. None of this life is for me and none of this life is for my... Uh, I don't know, 
uh, legacy or anything like that. This life is for me to be a witness and to seize every opportunity to be a witness, even at the end of time when persecution abounds the people of God. Part of the witness or or the presence of Christ is also expressed in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, he says, Settle it therefore in your minds. Get it firmly fixed. Make up your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. In other words, we might say, make up your mind not to worry about such persecution. Because the presence of Christ will be uniquely with you to empower you, verse 15, to give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I I think of the apostles, or I thought of the apostles, uh, Peter and John specifically in Acts chapter 4. They're hauled before the religious leaders. And this is what the religious leaders said in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Of all the things that could be said about us, let that be said about us. That we're common, ordinary people, even uneducated, but it's undeniable we have been with Jesus and He has been with us. And the persecution that awaits us is the opportunity to bear such a witness that Christ is with His people. He is with His people and He is for His people even in the face of adversity, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of torment and persecution. That's why our brothers and sisters of ages of old can go to the stake and be burned alive while singing hymns because they know Christ is is with me. And it is evident Christ is with me. And many a people have been converted by seeing the martyrs die for Christ. The word martyr, by the way, is the Greek root word for testimony and witness. The presence of Christ will be upon us in this kind of persecution in such a way that it will be plainly evident to all our adversaries they cannot withstand or contradict us because Christ Himself fills us up and gives us wisdom and uses us as His mouthpiece to proclaim His glories and excellencies to those who hate us. This will be our opportunity. And it is a great opportunity. Where believers will not only bear witness, but because of Christ, they will be a witness as He works through us. I'll read to you what I have in my notes here. The life of faithful obedience may be one of adversity and suffering, but it isn't one that is grim or a horrible experience. Because adversities of faith prove to mean that Jesus is uniquely present and promising Himself to enable and empower us. Whatever we lose, even life itself, it's nothing but a fallen hair from the head compared to the life to come. That's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18. So we have the promise of Christ's presence and persecution. Now we have the promise of His protection and persecution. Not a hair of your head will perish. That doesn't mean we won't be in pain. That doesn't literally mean you won't lose your hair. It doesn't mean you won't die. 
Just before that, Jesus has said, some will put you to death. What it does mean, though, is that God intimately knows and is aware of your suffering, and nothing happens apart from His permission and His design and His knowledge. Jesus has said the same thing in Matthew 10.28. And in Matthew 9.24, or Luke 9.24 and Luke 17.33, He says the same thing that He says in verse 19. Your endurance will gain your life. He who loses his life for my sake will what? Save it and find it and have it and possess it. Again, James Edwards says, given the context of verse 16, it cannot mean that no physical harm will befall believers. It must therefore be understood spiritually that without God's will, nothing can befall believers. And even if death befall them, their souls will be absolutely safe. Verse 18 is not simply spiritual assurance, but it is a graphic reconfigurement of the meaning of life. From the perspective of eternity, the loss of one's earthly life is no greater than the loss of a single hair. The good news about all of this is that though the world will descend into chaos, political, geological, cosmic, and relational chaos, and the, God, and the people of God, the children of God, will be persecuted to the point of death, the good news is that it won't last forever. That in verse 27, when the Son of Man comes in power and great glory, all of this suffering and all of this chaos will be finished forever. Put down once and for all. And we will exist in harmony and in pleasure and in joy and in perfection with our Savior Himself. But until then, let these signs and let the persecution we experience drive us to Christ Himself. Drive us to Jesus. And drive others to Jesus. And there, find life and salvation. Father, I thank You for Your Word that in it you lay out the signs of the close of the age, signs that seem to be so ominous to us and yet preclude such a glorious event, such a glorious day, when you will come in power and great glory to gather your church to yourself. And all the disintegration of this sinful world, all the sinful chaos that abounds in all the persecution of your people, will cease forever. Until then, let us stand firm in the faith. Let us see our opportunity to be a witness, to uniquely and evidently show your presence among us, knowing that we're protected, cared for, and we have a hope of life to come. Let us endure these times, O Lord, for your glory, for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.